0: with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God.
1: body if you were not here last week, uh, or maybe you were, we are praying at 9:03 in the morning and 9:03 at evening. And if you'd like to get a prayer prompt dealing with issues in the church, issues in our area, things that we want to lift in prayer, just a single sentence prayer prompt, then go to 903. This is area code 903, right? It's easy to remember. 903-290-1395. Text pray. And about 150 of you did that last week, and you were getting those prayer prompts. And if you were not getting those, if you will just let us know. We'd like to help in any way we can. Go ahead and take your phone and do that if, you've not, if you're not, you not. Go ahead. Is he telling us to take the phone in church and use it? Yeah, go ahead and take your phone. 903-290-1395 and text PRAY. You get a prayer prompt. Well, you heard Philippians 1 mentioned or read just a moment ago, and I would ask you to go in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, put a finger there, and go to Acts chapter 16. We're going to begin a series this morning that's going to take us several months through the book of Philippians. And let me just tell you, Philippians is all about joy when life is anything but happy. I'm calling it Joy in Troubled Times, would you agree we live in troubled times? Uh, normal sickness, unusual sickness, family drama, and on top of all of that, uh, those normal issues, people are divided by political positions. Lose, we lose friends over vaccinations or not, mask or not. People questioning their faith. There's not a lot of joy around. So let me just ask you, what brings you joy? What, what makes you happy? That question was asked in a national women's magazine. I'm not in the custom of reading women's magazines, but someone shared this with me. Ten ways to feel better fast. Um, Barbara says, I head home for lunch and watch my favorite so- soap opera. I credit Days of Our Life for help- helping me feel better. Joan said, I listen to quiet music that I have on my phone. Jan said, whenever life gets me down, I check out mentally by pretending I'm on a desert island with Antonio Banderas. Kathy says, I cure my depression by shopping. Better husband loves that. Heather said, I find my comfort in food. Whenever I'm down, I head for the nearest deli and order a pastrami on rye. Karen said, my pick-me-up is to fantasize revenge. Natalie said, the way I get a kick out of life is I dress up my daughter's Barbie dolls. Stephanie said, I rent a scary movie and watch it. And then the magazine suggests a few other ways to, to get happy. Uh, Read the first love story you ever read. Get away by yourself. Get rid of your old underwear. That's the best our world can do. I mean, I'm at home thinking about killing myself and get rid of my old underwear. And when I read this kind of stuff, I make no apology for going to a letter written by a man sitting in a stinking prison who writes about joy. I mean, think about sitting in prison, facing death, lonely, hurting emotionally, hurting physically, hungry, beaten, probably sick, no privacy, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And he writes a letter to his friends about where to find joy when life is really, really hard. In fact, the three most mentioned words in Philippians are these, Jesus or Christ, 40 times joy 17 times in other words joy is connected with jesus and then the word mind set your mind on this guard your mind have one mind so you put all that together and philippians is about joy that comes from a mind that is settled on jesus and what is so interesting is and this is fairly rare in scripture We're told how this little church in the city of Philippi started because it was not intentional on Paul's part. He kind of backs into it. So let's walk through Acts chapter 16 for just a moment. I want you to see how this church started. Paul went on three different missionary journeys. This is journey number two. Uh, He's got this well-planned itinerary. He's with his friends, and they're going back and visiting one church after another that they have launched. Uh, encouraging people, uh, encouraging leaders, doing training, and they intended to go on to the next city, and God stopped them. Look at verse 6. So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. God told them no, and we don't know how he told them no. God is not limited in the way that he can close doors. You ever felt like you've had a door slammed in your face? Yeah. You ever felt like you prayed and prayed and nothing happens, and it becomes apparent God is saying no. That's what they're experiencing. And sometimes God uses all kinds of means to say no. We're not sure how that happened. Maybe they, their little team couldn't agree. Maybe there was sickness. Maybe there were visa restrictions, a political um, things happening, but God closed the door. Look at verse 8. So passing on to Mysia, they went down to Troas. Troas is this seacoast town near Troy where the Trojan War was fought against Greece, and they're waiting. They're just waiting. What do you do when you don't know what to do? They try to go this way, can't go, try to go this way, can't go, try to go this way. And it's like every door is slammed in their face. What do you do while you're waiting? Well, Paul takes a nap. Look at verse 9. And in a vision, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we... So picks up Luke, who's writing this. He picks up, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So he gets a vision. He gets a dream. God is not limited in the way that he guides us. He can cause a verse of scripture to come even a single word of scripture to come alive to us, advice from a trusted friend, a sense of peace. But on this occasion, he has, he has a vision uh, sometimes God changes our desires, but he has a dream. And in the dream, he's told, forget your carefully laid out itinerary, forget your plans, drop everything, get on a board a ship and go over to Macedonia, which is a region. And Philippi is one of those cities there. And let me just say this. If you believe God has given you a dream, if you believe God has given you a vision, check it out with other people like he did, because he says, we concluded we have an amazing capacity to deceive ourselves. We have this unusual ability to think God is calling us to do something just because we want to do it or we had a, an impression. An impression might be nothing more than pizza we ate last night, but we, we had this sense. Check it out with other people. And so he says, we all concluded, we all agreed that God was calling us to do this. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city uh, for some days. So they end up in Europe for the first time, about 10 miles from the sea. Philippi is this military town. It's named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. It's, uh, it's a business center, it's a university town, and it's very religious. Ruthie and I spent uh, a Labor Day uh, and the Sunday after, last Sunday after the service, just driving around. I cannot believe the number of churches in Longview. This is a very religious town. And there's a university here. And there's a lot of businesses. So in a sense, we're kind of like uh, Philippi. And he says, we remain there a number of days. And you kind of get the impression Paul is walking around trying to figure out what to do. Okay, Lord, I'm here now. Now, what now? I I, I followed you. Maybe he's looking for the man that he saw in his vision, and it turns out that man is going to be a woman. Verse 13. He says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So she's a businesswoman. She's got a fabric company who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. Now, this is how Paul started churches. He would arrive at a town. He'd go into the synagogue. He'd preach, start a riot, get beat up, thrown in jail, get out, and start a church. That's the way Paul did it. But there's no synagogue in this town because you have to have 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. So he thinks, well, maybe someone's down by the riverside. So he walks down there, and he finds a group of women who are reciting Jewish prayers. Gets into a conversation with them, strikes up this conversation with Lydia. And God has been preparing her heart all along. She believed in God. She's worshiping, she's praying, but she does not know him, much like many Lydia's who live in Longview in this area. Believe in God. They may even worship him, but they don't know him. And in just a few moments, she understands the gospel that Jesus lived, the life she should have lived. He died the death she should have died. He rose from the dead. She becomes a Christ follower. And it says, the Lord opened her heart. She confessed her faith in Christ. She's baptized. And then she goes for her household. It's very natural when, when you've had an experience with God to share it with the people who are closest to you. The gospel runs on relational lines. Every missionary knows that. So she brings her family back down to the river. They meet with Paul. They hear the gospel. They are baptized. And because she's apparently pretty successful as a businesswoman, she owns a large house, and she invites them to come stay at her her house. She opens up the Lydia bed and breakfast. And her house becomes the first meeting place for the church. And she's going to end up underwriting the ministry of the church. I think hospitality is one of those undervalued Powerful tools that God has given to us. It's hard for some people to believe you want them in that you want them in your church if you don't want them in your home. I have a friend who uh, who says people who are opposed to the gospel are not opposed to ice cream. So every Friday he invites people who are outside the family of God into his home and they eat ice cream and they play table games and before long they're in the church and before long they're coming to Christ, before long they're being baptized, they're training and becoming leaders because they, they felt welcome. They belonged even before they believed. I think hospitality, Rosaria Butterfield is a, uh, was a feminist scholar in Syracuse, the university she was a radical lesbian. And she was writing an article about Christianity and homosexuality. And she published it. And a pastor of a Presbyterian church read the article and reached out to her and invited her to come into his home. And she expected to be attacked and all kinds of things thrown at her. She came in the, And they just had dinner. And they just talked. And that led to a friendship between this radical lesbian living with a, another woman and, and this pastor and his wife and over a period of months she showed up in their home they loved on her, they answered her their questions they, they argued a little bit but as a result of that she came to understand about Christ and she's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key there's something about opening your home to people having a meal together with people who are outside the family of God that the Lord uses. I think hospitality, in this case, like this, is an undervalued value in the kingdom of God. So she opened her heart. God opened her heart, and she opens her home. So in one day, Paul's got the beginning of his church. He's got a place to stay. He's got his first church member, and he thinks, this, I know now why God brought us here, but Satan does not lightly easily give up his territory. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Literally, it says a python spirit. They used to believe, the Greeks used to believe that a python spirit enabled you to give oracles and tell fortunes. She brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who, who proclaimed to you the way of salvation, and she kept doing this for many days. Can you imagine someone following you into Panera, shouting, he's here to tell you how to get saved. These are servants of the Most High God. You go into Target. She's following you. She's screaming. Finally, one day, Paul has had enough. Verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, boy, do I understand that, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour, and you can imagine the peace that she had. The relief, these alien entities inside of her are gone. So he's got a second church member. He's got a wealthy businesswoman, and he's got a formerly demon-possessed girl. But the only problem was her handlers her owners now lost their income stream. So verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, "These men are Jews, so you've got anti-Semitism going. You've got racial prejudice going on here. They're Jews, they're, they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice." And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And we understand, the scholars tell us, those rods were as thick as your thumb. Sometimes they were embedded with little pieces of glass or sharp rocks or blades so that when you beat someone, you literally tore the flesh off of them. They inflicted them with many blows. They threw them into the prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. So their legs are widely separated. They're in these stocks that are clamped down. Their legs begin to cramp. And you just have to believe that Paul did a little evaluation at this point. Things were going so smoothly. People were coming to Christ. People had a place to stay. And now, rats on the floor. Backs are raw. Ribs are cracked. They're bleeding. They're cramping up. Unjustly accused. Uncertain future. What's going to happen to the church? But we know the kind of stuff that Paul was made of. He and Silas were in God's will. So they said, we're going to worship God even though things are a mess right now. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them like they had something else to do. I mean, they're waiting to hear moans and screams and curses. And for the first time in history, praise songs are being sung in this prison. I I don't know what they sang. Maybe the Hebrew equivalent of How Great Thou Art. Blessed be your name. I know what I'd be, I would have been singing, the old hymn "Rescue the Perishing." That's what I would have been singing. Some of us are really hard to motivate to sing, even though things are not going really too badly. Nothing holding us back. And here's Paul and Silas, miserable conditions, and they decide to worship God for how wonderful He is and the fact that He is in control, in spite of all. Of circumstances, and he's working all this for their good and his glory. You know, the Bible says there are three different kinds of Christians. In this room, there are three different kinds of Christians, those of you who are Christians. There are infant Christians who get really angry with God when things don't go the way they think they should and begin saying, it's not fair, it's not fair, shake their fist at God. Spiritual infants. There are spiritual adolescents who begin to Cry out to God and say, Why did you let this happen? Is this the abundant life you promised me? And then there are spiritual adults who say, I trust you in the middle of this pain and humiliation. They're just like Job. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And these two guys found a reason to sing in the worst of circumstances. I think they turned to one another and they said, Let's sing. Let's sing in the bottom of this dungeon. Let's sing till the jailer hears us. And how they sang. They brought the house down, literally. Look at verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. You know, in that part of northern Greece, earthquakes are very common. It's an earthquake zone. And the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened. The doors flew off their hinges, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And they don't leave. Why not? I mean, I would have. See ya. I'm out of here to the jailer. We're gone. Why didn't they leave? Why did they stay? And the only reason I can come up with is... They had been verbally abused. They had been accosted in public. They were victims of prejudice and been lied about, been attacked by a hostile crowd, been condemned by this corrupt political system. They'd been stripped and beaten and imprisoned, all trying to do God's will. But Paul had one goal in life, and that was to magnify Jesus Christ and advance his cause. That was what drove him. Magnify Jesus and advance his cause. And I think they must have looked at each other and said, maybe this happened because someone here needs to hear the gospel. They understood the penalty for the jailer if prisoners escaped. So verse 27 says, When the jailer woke, saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul in silence And then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'm not sure he understood theologically what he was saying. I think he probably was saying, How do I get out of this mess? You know, to be saved is to be rescued. How can I be rescued from this? And they said, You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in their house. his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once. He and all of his family, they brought him up into his house. He set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so Paul has his third church member, wealthy businesswoman, a formerly demon-possessed girl, and a man whose job it was to kill and torture people. Pretty tough church start. But that's what Paul was getting every church member he could get at this point. He says, surprise, we're all here. Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, well, the magistrates have sent to let you guys go. Come on out, go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves, take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. You see, in those days, if you beat a Roman citizen unjustly, then you would be punished with the same kind of punishment that you dished out. No wonder they were afraid. So they came and apologized to them. They took them. And this is so ironic to me. They accused Paul of teaching customs that were illegal for Romans. And Paul says, you're doing what is illegal to Romans. They went out of the prison. They visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I think the reason they did all of that is they were protecting that little church. It, those magistrates would think twice before going after anyone in that church. That's how it started. Paul just kind of backed into it. This is the war, and, he, and years later, again, he's sitting in prison, unjustly accused. Again, he's hurting, and he picks up a pen, and he writes a letter to that little church in Philippi that he loves so much. Heart, they're on his heart, and he writes about how to have joy in the worst of circumstances. So let's go to Philippians real quickly and look at those first few verses. This is one of the most personal letters. If you've not read Philippians in a long time, I just encourage you, give it a shot this week. Read the book of Philippians, read it several times. He writes, Paul and Timothy, by the way, when I get an email. I look at who is sending it before I read it. This is like an email. He puts the name up up at the top. Paul and Timothy, servants, literally slaves of Christ Jesus. In other words, I don't belong to myself. I am a man under authority. He says, go, and I go. He says, stop, and I, I stop. I'm here to obey and follow my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, to all the saints In Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. Now you may have grown up in a church where you understood that a saint was somebody who died a long time ago and they did three miracles, and because of that, they're elected to sainthood, and now they have merits that they can pass on to you if you'll pray to them. But in the Bible, a saint is just a Christian. That's our identity as Christians. Jesus lived for us, died for us, rose from the dead for us, intercedes for us in heaven, sends the Holy Spirit to us, draws us to Himself. And he calls us saints, which literally means holy people. You are a saint. Let's try that on for size. I'd like you to turn to the person on either side of you and say, hello, saint. Now I'd like all of you to repeat after me, I'm a saint. (laughs) You can put it on your business card you're looking for a job, put it on your resume. Someone says to you, so why should I give you this job? I'm a saint. So It's your idea. What joy, what dignity is is there in being a Christian to be called one of God's holy people, a saint? And then he says, I'm running to all the saints with the overseers. It's the Greek word, episkopoi, epi, over, skopos, to see Overseers are elders, are pastors. Three synonymous terms. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. They watch after the spiritual welfare of the church. And he says, to the deacons. and That word deacon simply means servant. It it, it literally comes from the idea, dia, through, konos, dust. Somebody who's raising dust because they're serving, they're walking so quickly. That's what a deacon is. He serves the needs of of the church. It could be translated minister. And Paul says, grace to you. If you had to sum up all that God is and does for us, you could do it with one word, grace. We can't achieve it. We can't earn it. Don't deserve it. Anything God does for us, just grace. And peace, the result of grace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, every time I pray, I get your faces in my mind. I find myself thinking of you, and my heart just fills up with happiness. I remember the first day, I was just wandering around, got down to the river. Hour later, Lydia's being baptized. Never forget that. Never forget her family, her hospitality. And that demon-possessed girl and the power of God, then they arrested us and they beat us and the earthquake and the jailer. And what, an exp- what memories in my mind. Do you have any memories like that? When you're down in the trenches with other believers and you're serving the Lord, and maybe it's really hard... There is a bond that is created. You go on a mission trip, you serve in a ministry in the church, you're you're serving together. Your heart gets bound up and knit with the heart of other believers. And you create these memories like Paul had. And those memories have the capacity to bring joy uh, to your heart. Maybe you've not suffered like Paul, but you've had some hard times, but you've stood shoulder to shoulder, you've taken some hits. And when you remember those amazing answers to prayer, remember that time we were praying and God did this? Boy, those memories just fill you with a sense of God's presence. The greatest experiences of life, friends, those precious memories apart from our family come from sharing ministry together. And I just want to say, if this is your church, you need to be involved in serving here. And you need to be involved in serving outside of the church. Those memories will come. Look at verse, verse 6. He says, uh, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I, I have you in my heart. He loved these people, and they loved him. I have you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of the grace Both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, God is my witness. How I yearn for all of you with the affection of of Christ Jesus. So I can't wait to get back to see you again. And then he prays for them. And by the way, if you're looking for a prayer to pray for your leaders here in this church, for elders, for deacons, for staff, for life group leaders, for small group leaders, I don't think you can do better than this prayer. Verse 9. My prayer, he says, that your love will abound more and more. Pray that the leaders of this church will grow in love. Because, after all, love is the mark of a Christian. You can have the right doctrine, you can have the right mission, but if you lack love, Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And he gives people outside the church the right to determine whether we're Christians or not by the way we love each other. It's the mark of a Christian. Just pray that the, and pray for kids, pray for your parents that their love will abound, will grow. Parents, pray for your kids that their love will will grow more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. I think the NIV says so that you know what's best. A lot of options in life, a lot of decisions we have to make, and there are good things And there are the best things. And the enemy of the best is the good sometimes. So pray for your leaders here. That in decisions that they make, they'll discern what's best. What is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. What a great prayer to pray. Now in the time that I have left, I just want to look at verse 6 once again because it is a classic verse. In fact, we're going to put it on the screen, I think, here. Maybe verse 6. You have not look. There it is. No. Nope we'll get... Okay, that last part of it. See verse 6 there? Would you read this with me? And I am sure... Let's all just read together. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you... Will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus Christ. If I could read it, it would be wonderful. I'm sure this would make this your memory verse this week. Uh, Paul says, "I want in all the craziness of this world, of this life, I want you to be sure of one thing. This is your source of confidence. He who began a good work in you, there it is, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus." God's going to finish what he started in your life. What he starts, he finishes. And we get discouraged and we waver and we don't know what to do. What God starts, he finishes. And I just want to unpack that verse for just a couple of minutes here. Paul wants them to know who began the good work in them. He's reminding that little church, I didn't start this church. I, I didn't do it. God told me to change my travel plans God led me down to the river, strike up a conversation with the women. God told me not to leave the jail until after the earthquake. So let's set the record straight. I did not give birth to this church. God did. And that's true of individual Christians. Let's be clear. You are a Christian because God initiated your salvation. He thought of you long before you thought of him. He set his heart on you. God, he gave his son to die for you. He gave his spirit to draw you to himself. Even the faith with which we believe is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 1 John 4, 10 says, he, we love because he first loved us. We don't love God first. He first loved us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Luke 15, the shepherd goes after the sheep that are wandering away. And John 6, no one comes to me unless the father draws him. And every Christian I know can look back and see how God orchestrated events so that I could come to Christ. He brought a pastor into my life. He brought a friend into my life. I was reading the Bible one day sitting in a hotel room, and there was that Gideon Bible, and I, I, I picked it up. God was preparing me. Lydia, I think if you ask her, how did you become a Christian? When did it begin? Well, it began with Paul was on the other side of the... He was in another continent. God brought him over here, and I was just down by the, I I happened to be at that very place in the river, that very time when Paul, who's wandering around the town, shows up at that very place, and of all the people who were at the river that day, he speaks to me. God was the one who started my salvation. The jailer, the very night he's on duty, the very part of the prison he's responsible for, the earthquake, the prisoners didn't leave, God started it. God started your salvation, and you and I can do the same thing. We can look back, and God brought friends in my life. He orchestrated circumstances, just the right time to prepare me for Christ. God God was drawing a bead on you. C.S. Lewis wrote wrote a series of letters to a young atheist named Malcolm. In fact, it became a book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And Malcolm is raising all of these questions about the Christian faith And in the book, C.S. Lewis said, I think you are already in the meshes of the net. The Holy Spirit's after you. I doubt you get away. Not long after that, there was another letter, and Malcolm had become a believer. What God starts, he finishes. Paul's reminding that little church in Philippi. I think he's reminding Fellowship Bible Church. He's not like us. We start all kinds of stuff, and we... How many of you have a garage with unfinished projects? May I see your hand? How many of you have a closet with unfinished projects? We start stuff all the time, and it's either taking too much time, or it takes too much money, or it's too difficult. Husbands and wives give up on marriage. Parents give up on their kids. Kids give up on their parents. Friends give up on each other. The process is just too... It's It's too hard. We give up. We leave things unfinished there's not a quitter bone in God. He never starts anything he leaves unfinished, never gets bored, never runs out of resources. And so Paul is saying to that little church there 2,000 years ago, and I believe he's saying to us, because God started this fellowship, you can count on this, he will sustain you, persecution may happen, might fall on hard economic times, leaders may fail you, but you know this, because God started it, he will sustain it to the end. People may quit the church, but God will never quit on his people. It's true of individuals. He will finish his saving work in you. Here's a guy who says he's a Christian. He believes all the right things about Jesus. How do you know he's really a Christian? how do you know anyone who says they're a Christian is really a Christian? Ray Stedman at Peninsula Bible Church years ago said, here's how you know. A true Christian cannot quit. You wander away. You can, what the old time people used to call backslide. But you can't quit. You just can't quit. John 10, 28. You can't be plucked out of the Father's hand. Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And I'll tell you my own testimony, there have been times in my life when I thought God had come to the last, the straw that broke the camel's back. I had sinned to the point that God would look at me and say, I am through with you. I'm done. Make no mistake, he hates sin. We have no idea how God detests sin, but he loves you more than he hates your sin. God says, I see your sin and it grieves me. But I'm not going to quit on you, Sam. I'm not going to quit on you. Let's pick up from right here and let's rebuild. And you need to know if you're a Christian, he is committed to get you to the finish line. And God will continue not only his saving work, he'll continue his transforming work. You know what I've learned from this verse? God loves you as you are. And he loves you too much to leave you like you are. To leave you. He wants to take you to the next level. And he will keep working on you. He will take the good work that he has started and he will finish. And that's the good news. He won't give up on us. But here's what seems like bad news to some of us. He won't give up on us. Whether you realize it or not, when the Holy Spirit came into your life as a Christian, he came with one job assignment and that was to make you like Jesus. And he will not stop until you are like Jesus. He'll transform your morals your language, your values, your attitude, your ambitions, your conduct. He will not back off. He won't cooperate when you go, that's enough growing for me. I'm I'm, I'm here. He's not going to back off. He is relentless. He takes no vacation, no sick days, no time off, no holidays. He is dogged in his determination to make you and me like Jesus, and nothing can stop him. And if you stalemate him, he'll just keep on tugging and nudging and whispering sometimes chastise us till we get the idea he's not going to let up he will wear you and me down and if necessary bring enough chaos into our life where we're limping like jacob till you come to the point you realize your arms are too short to box with god he's never met his match he's never met a teenager he couldn't handle never met a 35 year old or a senior adult we may scream no fair god he's going to finish what he started he's never met his match and i've reached the conclusion it just hurts more it takes more energy to fight god's transforming work than to give in die to sin die to myself and yield to him and i wonder and i want to finish with this i just wonder aren't some of you tired of fighting with god aren't you tired of fighting just resisting him Maybe it's a moral issue in your life. God's convicting you, and you can count on him to continue to convict you. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe you've crossed some kind of ethical line at work. He will not let up. Maybe you're not giving. Maybe you're not serving. He's tugging at you. Maybe it's a careless devotional life. You might as well surrender, because from personal experience, I can tell you, you are outgunned. You're not going to win this battle, not with God. And the longer you resist him, the the longer you postpone peace and joy. And God will mercifully and relentlessly bring to your attention the changes you need to make to begin to get on the path toward Christ's likeness. You see, if you're a Christian, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. You really are. You you can't just fully enjoy sin anymore, not for long. And you can't really enjoy God fully without being yielded to him. So those are your options. You can resist the good work he's doing in you, or you can raise the white flag of surrender and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to walk with you again. Because life in all of its fullness comes when we cooperate with the good work God is doing in us. And there's my last point. He started his good work at Fellowship Bible Church and he will complete it. Can I? You ought to say amen on that one. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we are in the hands of Jesus who loved us to the point he freely yielded up his life for us, freely gave us the Holy Spirit, freely gave us his word. We're in your hands, and we can live with the confidence what you've started, you're going to finish in us, our our salvation and transformation to be like Christ. Lord, help us to be people who trust that and are willing to take great risk for the sake of the gospel because we could not be in safer hands no matter what we encounter. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us like you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet for a moment? Connie Dever is a pastor's wife. In Washington, D.C., Mark Dever, his her husband. She came down with cancer. And through all of the chemo, radiation, all of the humiliation, all of the frustration, the pain of cancer, she wrote a song. I think you've sung it once here. He will hold me fast. And just as a way of confirming what we've heard from God's Word, let's Sing this like we're in prison. Let's sing it. He will hold me fast, and then I've got a final blessing I want to give to you. you some missionaries who are here with us, Christopher and Darlene Clark. Are you here in the room? There they are right over here. Let's just welcome them to fellowship once again. <laughs> Serving the Lord in Papua New Guinea. And I think we may hear from them next week. I hope you're here with their son headed over to Oh, Can I give you a blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his face to each one of you and give you his peace this week. If you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. God bless you, folks.